This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Turn with me in your Bibles to our sermon text this morning, which is Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Uh, We are in the midst of a series of studies in the book of Ecclesiastes. This morning, we're looking at uh, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Let us pray. Our God, we do turn to you in reverence and fear this morning because you are the sovereign, almighty God. And this is your word. This is your truth. It is given by inspiration of your Holy Spirit. And Father, even as you work in and through those who wrote these words, it is nevertheless your word and therefore inerrant and infallible. And so, Father, we submit to its authority. We pray that you would... Uh, help us to grow in our knowledge of you as in our study of it together this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was growing up in uh, junior, senior high school, I was a Christian. I grew up in a home where I was taught the biblical truths that I was a sinner, that I was in need of God's grace. Uh, that the only way that I would be with God in heaven is through the blood, shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, having died on my behalf and raised to life on my behalf. And so I was trusting in Him. And I was learning the truths of the Bible. After all, we were using Great Commission publications material. The brain was being well stocked with solid doctrinal biblical truth. But I was only beginning to grow. I was certainly not uh, mature in the faith. I was just beginning to learn the truths of the Scripture and see how they applied to my life. I was in junior high, senior high school coming along. However, 
even at that age, I, I was aware of a couple of things. One, I was aware of being blessed to be in a church where the scriptures were taught and preached as the word of God, a church that uh, was characterized by doctrinal integrity, by confessional orthodoxy, uh, as well as uh, life of the Holy Spirit. I was also aware that when we came into the sanctuary to worship God, that we were entering into something that was very serious. In some ways, that was assisted by the architecture of the building in which we worshiped with its uh, gothic arched stained glass windows and dark woodwork going up to a high uh, ceiling. Uh, so the, the building itself conveyed the seriousness and the solemnity of what we were there for. But just the fact that we were coming together, we were coming into the presence of God, we were coming under the authority of the Word of God as it was preached, conveyed to me that this was not something to be trifled with. Whatever silliness or frivolity took place in my life stayed outside the doors when we came in to worship. Now, as I grew older, as I interacted with other people there in school, you can imagine that with that foundation, I was somewhat taken aback in hearing conversations of friends of mine, acquaintances of mine, discussing their activities in church when they went to church, often sitting together, which we were not allowed to do, we were with our parents, uh, sitting together, and a great deal of extracurricular activity apparently taking place during the worship service, whispered communications, note passing, elbow nudging, uh, and other things that I was uh, honestly somewhat surprised to, to hear of. Not that it was uh, known to me, but just that someone would come into the worship service with a rather cavalier attitude toward it, was a little bit surprising to me. Well, certainly from a biblical point of view, uh, the worship of God is something very serious, something not to be taken lightly, something not to be entered into uh, with a distracted mind or heart, uh, and certainly something not to be entered into uh, with a willingness to play or goof off or be distracted or to be silly. As we come to this passage before us here in Ecclesiastes, we come to a passage that is, is if you've been with us in this study, you'll know is, is radically different from much of the rest of the book. There are a couple of explanations for that. Uh, as, the, as the preacher, Koheleth, the writer of Ecclesiastes, is talking about life under the sun, taking a rather secular view of things and trying to make a lot, sense of life apart from God, uh, he takes a rather dim view of things. It's all vanity. It's all meaningless. It's all chasing after the wind. And yet, obviously, even in things he's set up to this point, he is aware of who God is. He is aware of uh, the truths uh, that Israel held and knew revealed by God. And so it's not surprising that when we come to a passage like this, he would speak of the worship of God in this way. Another way of viewing what has happened here is understanding what he says in something of a dark way. 
to speak of the, the majesty, the presence of God as something forbidding. God is distant, therefore he's not prepared to listen. Possibility, given the pessimistic tone of the whole book. However, I think there is underlying this text a positive tone, a recognition that whatever view he takes of life under the sun, when we do gather to worship God, when we do come together for the worship of God, that there should be a seriousness and a solemnity uh, and a great deal of respect for what it is that we are about. And so he has some pretty significant things here to say about worship. Now, as we study the text, I want to say up front that obviously the worship of God takes place in real life. Uh, we, we've all had a busy week. We have things we're anticipating this week. Uh, but this time that we come together to worship should be a pause in life, a, a time when we step out of time into the eternal to meet with God and to meet with God together because as much as individual devotional Prayer life, worship of God is important. It's also important that we come together and worship God and pray to God together. After all, the Lord's Prayer doesn't begin, My Father, which is in heaven. It begins, Our Father, assuming that there's more than one person praying at the time. So then let's look at uh, what this chapter in Ecclesiastes has to say to us. He he basically shares, shares with us three thoughts pertaining to the worship of the living God. First thing he says is when it comes time to worship, approach carefully. Approach carefully. Look at verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps. Our English idiom is very similar. Watch your step. In other words, be careful Be mindful of what it is that you are about to do. Approach carefully. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And there's several reasons for that. If we look at that uh, exhortation in the light of all of Scripture, first of all, we want to approach carefully because we remember who it is before whom we come. We are, after all, coming to worship God. Now, for some people, that doesn't mean a whole lot. Uh, in our culture, with its um, slide toward being casual, which in some ways is a nice thing, is not a nice thing when our conception of God is also pushed toward the casual if, as if God is only one of us, just more so. But God is a being of unspeakable holiness, of incomprehensible grandeur, of overwhelming majesty. And the idea that we somehow come before him as though we're coming to the man upstairs and we come cut our deals with God is, biblically speaking, blasphemous. Humanly speaking, ludicrous. We need to remember just who it is uh, that we are coming before, whose presence it is that we enter. The best way that uh, we can come about uh, shaping a proper conception of God is to derive our understanding of God from the Scriptures, not from pop culture, certainly not from movies and so forth. Uh, We need to have our understanding of God shaped by the Scriptures themselves, 
where God reveals himself to us. And so we approach carefully when we remember who it is uh, in whose presence we enter. We also need to remember the dangers. It is dangerous to approach God, you know. We become so used to gathering here or even individually going before him in prayer uh, that we forget that God is dangerous. He is not to be toyed with. Our Old Testament reading and New Testament readings uh, show us this. It reminds us the dangers, the danger of approaching God flippantly. We read earlier of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10, uh, offering some sort of offering before God. The ESV uh, characterizes it as unauthorized fire, an unauthorized offering. The old King James translated strange fire. And you have to read between the lines a little bit to, to get a sense of what it was they were doing. But apparently they were goofing around. Apparently they thought, well, let's just mix up something here and we'll, we'll see what that looks like when it burns. God was not amused. He struck them dead. Because God says, by those who approach me, I will be treated as holy. In other words, he's not going to be trifled with. And these young men should have known better than simply to concoct some sort of silly experiment in the presence of God and offer that to him as if anything would do. We read also the danger of hypocrisy. The story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 where they sold property and brought the proceeds. The problem apparently was not what they did It was that they lied. And in fact, later it says, you lied not to men, but to God. Apparently what had happened was where Barnabas had sold some property in the previous chapter and brought the proceeds and gave it to the the apostles to be distributed. uh, Ananias and Sapphira also did this. However, they did not give the whole amount of the sale. Is that a problem? No. It was their property. They could have given however, they could have sold the property and given nothing. But what they did was sold the property, gave a certain amount, kept some for themselves, but represented what was given as the full amount. In other words, claiming credit for more than they actually did. They certainly could have kept or given whatever, however much they wanted to. But the problem was that they represented what they had given as the entire amount of the sale. And so they were lying to the church, but more than that, they were lying to God himself. And Ananias was struck dead. They carried him out. Three hours later, his wife came along, and uh, they asked, well, is this the amount? She said, yes, that's the amount. Well, the men that buried your husband are coming back now for you. And, and she died, dropped dead by the will of God. So the dangers of flippancy in approaching God, the danger of hypocrisy in approaching God, you also have the danger of disobedience in approaching God. We didn't have two Old Testament readings, so I couldn't read this one, but you may be familiar with the tale of Uzzah in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And the scene is that they have the Ark of the Covenant, and they are moving it. This is 2 Samuel, which is after 1 Samuel. 
chapter 6. And uh, verse 5, we read, And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. They're moving the ark up to Jerusalem. The ark of the covenant, which symbolized God's covenant with Israel, represented his presence in their midst. And we read in verse 6, When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put, his hand to the, put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Now, what happened? Well, Uzzah saw that the oxen stumbled, the ark might have uh, tottered a little bit, and he reaches out his hand to steady it, and he touched the ark which was not to be touched. Instead, it had loops, it had poles that could be inserted. And in fact, they were moving it the wrong way. It was to be carried by poles, not on a cart with oxen. Nevertheless, well, Uzzah was, was doing something good. He was trying to keep it from falling on the ground or tumbling over. Well, David disagreed with God. David took that line, verse 8. David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And he called that place Perez Uzzah to this day, which means outburst against Uzzah. Well, whatever David thought, actually, and whatever you think, is irrelevant. Because God said, one, how it was to be carried, and two, it was not to be touched. And when he touched it, even with the best of motives, God struck him dead. Because he disobeyed, because he blurred the distinction between the common and the holy. And he paid dearly for it. So the dangers of approaching God, the danger of being flippant and careless or silly, the danger of hypocrisy, trying to deliberately pass yourself off as something you're not, not only to men but to God, the danger of disobedience. Uh, God is not to be trifled with. Hebrews chapter 12 Verses 28 through 29 really summarizes the point. We read, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let us worship God with reverence and awe. Is that the attitude with which you come to worship God? Is that what's on your heart as you enter into this room to meet with the living God? Dear friends, God in his grace may show mercy to those who are flippant or hypocritical or disobedient. But he doesn't have to. He may, but it's not required, as we've seen in the scriptures. So approach God in worship carefully. Second, speak before God sparingly. Speak sparingly. Look at the rest of verses 1 and 2 and 3. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. We need to speak sparingly. And, and that includes what we say, but I think it also can include our inner dialogue, inner thoughts toward God or about God when we come to worship him. We need to speak sparingly. Now, it says to come to listen. 
to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Uh, exactly what the sacrifice of fools is is somewhat hard to determine. It would seem in the context simply to be people who are offering a sacrifice merely by rote, just unthinking, just as a matter of practice, a matter of habit. Uh, but better than that is certainly to come and to listen. Now, the priests functioned in the offering of sacrifices in the temple. Uh, but they also had a teaching function as well. We read earlier in the Shorter Catechism that Christ occupies the offices of a prophet, a priest, and a king. As a prophet, he speaks God's will to us. As a king or as a priest, he uh, sacrificed, offered him up himself as a sacrifice. And as a king, he rules over us. Well, the priest certainly offered sacrifices, but he also had the role of teaching the people. We see this in different passages in the Bible. Deuteronomy 33, verse 10, speaks of the priests. They shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and hold burnt offerings on the altar. So both sacrifice and teaching are included in their role. Micah 3, verse 11, which is actually... uh, rebuking Israel for its wicked priests. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Well, maybe they weren't reading the same passages we've just read this morning. Uh, But they were doing so for money. They're mercenary in their approach. Malachi 2 verse 7. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So apparently, coming to offer these sacrifices of fools, as they're called here, instead of trotting their animal up there, they ought to be ready to be still and listen to the word of God as it was taught by the priests. So to come to listen. You know, we saw earlier in in, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, In verse 7, there's a time to keep silence and a time to speak. Sometimes it's time to be silent and listen. Uh, I remember at General Assembly in 1995 in Dallas, uh, Texas, we had uh, a a dinner I went to for Mission India, which is actually how we got into helping support Mission India and working with them in our missions program. But they had a dinner, information dinner, and at General Assembly, if someone's offering a free lunch, you take it. So uh, I went and sat at a large table that would seat about eight or ten people. And other men had come around and sat down here and met them, introduced ourselves. And, and lo and behold, here comes Dr. D. James Kennedy and sits down at our table. This recently deceased, you know, Dr. Kennedy. And there he was, pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. And thought, well, you know, what an opportunity to, to hear from him. Well, there was this young man sitting next to him who proceeded to regale Dr. Kennedy with tales of his glorious ministry and just went on. And Dr. Kennedy very patiently listened to this man and nodded and uh, humored him. But, um, you know, I thought, what a wasted opportunity. Why not ask one or two pointed questions and hear what Dr. Kennedy has to say about his ministry and about ministry in general? Uh, What a wasted opportunity. There's a time to be silent. There's a time to shut your mouth and listen as well as a time to speak, and often it requires great wisdom to know which is which, but it didn't in that case, and it doesn't when we come before God in worship. Sacrifice is important, but it's not the only thing. Indeed, it's not even here the primary thing. As we come, we don't come with uh, you know the noise of bleating sheeps and 
goats and, and whatnot, and for that we're very thankful uh, for that aspect of Christ's ministry as, as many others. But we do come to offer a sacrifice of praise. We do come to praise God, and we do so in, in worship. We do so through the reading of the Word. But as much as we delight to speak to God our praise, how much more important it is that we know when to be quiet and to listen to God through the reading of the Word and through the preaching of the Word of God. Listening to a sermon is not a passive activity, or it shouldn't be. It is an active one. It is one in which you worship God by thinking the thoughts of God after him, as they put it, in Scripture, thinking about what is said, interacting with what is being said, applying what is said, and yes, evaluating what is said, as the Bereans did, as to whether it is scriptural or not. And the word here to listen implies obedience to what is heard, not just letting it you know, pass through your mind, tickle your fancy, and, and move on, but it implies that you hear, you obey the word of God. And when you gather, you don't come here to listen to me. You come to listen to the Scriptures through me. But anything that I say that is not of the Scriptures has no binding authority on you in any way whatsoever. But you come here to listen to what God has to say in His Word. I'm struck by uh, Ezekiel chapter 33, the wrong way to listen to a sermon. Uh, In chapter... 33, verse 30, the Lord is speaking. He says, As for you, son of man, your people, tongue to Ezekiel, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses say to one another, each to his brother, Come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. When this comes, and come it will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. What's he saying? He's saying they like you. You're a good preacher. They go listen to you like they go listen to a pianist play or a symphony perform because they like the way you speak. They like the way you deliver the Word of God, but they don't do it. It's a performance for them. It's entertainment for them. That's not the way to listen to a sermon because listening implies obedience to not the Word of the preacher, but the Word of God. Notice he ends by saying, For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. What's it saying? We might paraphrase it this way. Just as when there's a lot going on in your life, and maybe you're under stress, you tend to have more dreams. So, if words are coming out of your mouth a lot, it might not be very long before some foolish words come out also. When there's a lot of care in your life, there's dreams. When there's a lot of words in your life, you're going to say some foolish things. That's essentially what this, and I think it's a proverb here, the quotes seems to be saying. And so as we read in the Word of God here, as we study this passage, it tells us to approach God carefully, to speak before God sparingly. And then the last thing that he says is to promise intentionally, to promise intentionally. Uh, Verses 4 through 7, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in Fools, pay what you 
vow. Now, there were vows in the Old Testament times. Typically, they were voluntary, the Nazarite vow or other vows that someone could take. Uh, It was a voluntary thing. You don't have to do it. And that's what he goes on to say here. But if you do, you need to follow through. Notice what he says. Let, Let not your mouth lead you into sin. and Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Uh, in other words, don't have lame excuses for why you can't do what you said. It's hard to know who the messenger is. Apparently there were people, either the priest or servant of the priest, who would go around, if, you know, if people made a pledge and say, well, you know, we haven't heard from you, haven't, haven't received your pledge. Oh, it was a mistake. I didn't make a pledge. Um, they must have misunderstood. Or uh, maybe it wasn't me. You know, don't do that. God knows. Now, these apply to us, too, because we are people, typically, in various connections who have entered into vows. If you're a member of this church or another church, more likely certainly another PCA church, then you have taken vows before the church and before God as to what you will do as a member of the church. If you are an elder or a deacon in this congregation or another, then you have taken vows before the church and before God as to how you will perform the duties and carry out the requirements of that office. If you are married here today, then you have taken vows before the three authorities, God and the church, the state and the family, that you will live together as husband and wife, loving and cherishing each other until death parts you. We are people under vows, and we must not enter into those vows lightly, nor after having made them, be careless in the keeping of them. And the passage tells us not to make excuses. I didn't know what I was saying. I was very young. They didn't mean anything to me. The work is so busy, I can't do it. I married the wrong person. We should never have gotten married, and so forth, and so on. If you promise to do it, do it. Psalm 15 says that part of what God considers in a person to be righteousness is a person who keeps his word even when it hurts to do so. Psalm 15, verse 4. A person who keeps his word even when it hurts or may not be to his advantage now to do so. If you especially make a vow before God, do it. Now, it goes on, verse 7. It says, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. Uh, It's hard to know exactly what he's getting at here, but it does seem to be when you have uh, these delusions about who God is, when you're doing more talking than listening to God, it's a problem. But God is the one you must fear. One person puts it this way. Babbling, rambling words may be all right in dreams, but they do not belong in worship. Our relationship to God is one of sober, respectful, reverent awe. False worship is as much an affront to him as obscene insults are to a wife or a husband. Better to bribe a judge than to ply God with hollow words. Better to slap a policeman than to seek God's influence by meaningless gestures. Better to perjure yourself in court than to harry God with promises that you cannot keep. The full adorations of our spirit, the true obedience of our heart, these are his demands and his delights. 
But God is the one you must fear. What about worship? Fear God. That's what it comes down to. Fear Him, yes. The fear of Israel. The one who can strike one down in a moment. The one who rules over heaven and earth. The one who is holy, holy, holy. Fear Him also with a sense of reverential respect and admiration. But fear Him. That's what it comes down to. It doesn't mean we can't smile. doesn't mean we can't have fun. doesn't mean we can't enjoy life. But it does mean when we come to worshiping God, when we come to living before Him, when we come to making vows in His presence, that it's serious business. And we must give Him due reverence. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before You and we confess how often we have sinned against You, how often we have offended You by using Your name carelessly or even blasphemously. For the times, Lord, when we have treated Your Word and what it tells us, when we have treated the gathering of Your people in public worship with less than the care and respect and regard that we should, when we have come into Your presence grumbling, threatening, complaining against You, Father, in all of these things, we ask Your mercy. We pray for forgiveness through the shed blood of Jesus. We pray that You would look upon us and not see all of that, but see only His flawless righteousness. Because, Lord, apart from that, we don't stand a chance. It's only a matter of time. Lord, we delight to worship You. We thank You that we can approach You as a Father who loves us, who delights in us, But Lord, let us never forget that when we approach you in worship, we also approach the Holy One of Israel who must and will be glorified. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.